0: I was thinking about this. I was thinking as our, our kids are in school. We've got five kids. They're all in school. And, and one of the things the kids start doing is they start bringing home these, these forms uh, about their science projects, like the science fair. You're like, any of you parents know what I'm talking about? Kid brings the form home. You've got to do a science project and then make a presentation. And then you go to the science fair and everybody shows. And, and, and when I brought this, when I saw this form, there's this dilemma that started in my heart. And I'm not sure if any other parents have been there, but there's this dilemma that starts raging in my heart on how much of the science project I do and how much I allow my kids to do, right? Because if you've ever been to one of these science fairs, like there's some parents that do some great science projects, right? You've been there, you've seen it, like I've seen it. And whether it's a science project or whether it's a kid's building a Pinewood Derby car, you've got parents that do wonderful work. All this is a way of trying to say, hey look, I've accomplished something. Look how good I am as a parent because I can do a science project for my kid to make my kid look really good. And it's something I've seen uh, time and time again. And and as my kids started bringing their science project forms home, uh, my goal was to be a project manager. My goal was to say, here you go kids, here's the steps. Let me help you walk through those steps. But my goal was for my kids to do the projects. And so when we show up to the science fair, man, we may not have the slickest presentation, but man, my kids learn something from it, and I feel pretty good about that. But this dilemma that we have with our kids doing their science projects is probably more than just science projects. Like this dilemma of how much do we do and how much do we allow them to do, it probably goes into our faith as well. Because we start looking at maybe something that God has put in our heart. When we have um, this deep wish that we want in our life, when, when God gives, gives us a vision, a purpose, a direction, there's this dilemma that rages in our heart where how much do we trust God to, to bring this to fruition, to make this happen, and how much do we go and, and make it happen ourselves? And you have this, this battle. Sometimes what happens is sometimes... Uh, God gives us that vision, God gives us that desire of the heart, and we say, I'm going to go, God, I'm going to make this happen. We pray a prayer, and we go and try and make it happen on our own. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I've been there. And you get ahead of God, and no longer is it God doing something, now it's me doing it, and I don't do very well, is what I found, when I don't have God on my side. And so I've done that. I've also done the thing where sometimes instead of running ahead of God, we say, well, I'm just going to let God do it. And I just sit back and wait and keep waiting and keep waiting. And it never happens. It's kind of like, God, well, I thought you were going to do this for me. Uh, But because there's no action to it, it doesn't ever happen. So here's what we want to wrestle with today. How do we balance this idea of having a trust in God and praying for God and having faith that God's going to work at our miss and do something versus how much we go and do ourselves. Like, how do we balance these two things? How do we balance faith and works? How do we balance uh, prayer and action? Like, what's the balance between these two things? And what should it look like played out in our life? So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, the 16th book of the Bible. If you need help finding it, uh, we've given you this great thing in your Bible. Actually, Crossway has given it to me. It's called a table of contents. And I'd encourage you, there's no shame if you want to know where it's at, turn to your table of contents. It should be the 16th book in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament. Uh, I do know my Bible, trust me. And uh, as we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 today, um, if you were to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, which we looked at uh, starting last week, Chapter 1, if you were to summarize, like, what's the key word? What is chapter 1 about? We would say chapter 1 is all about prayer. And if you were to look at chapter 2, you would say chapter 2, if you were to summarize what chapter 2 is all about, you would say it's about action. It's about these two ideas about prayer and action. And this is what we're going to look at today is is we're going to say, God, would you give us insight in our lives as to what the relationship between prayer and action is supposed to look like. So Nehemiah We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 today, and uh, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, I want to thank you just for uh, this privilege of being uh, with your people today. Uh, God, we know the church is not just a building, um, it's the people, and God, we get to gather with the church today to to worship you and to praise you, Uh, Lord, to be challenged in our faith, to know you and to make you known, and to grow deeper in love with you. So God, I pray that you just speak to every one of us here today, God, that you would allow us to put the distractions um, of the past week, of what's going on in our life, of what's going on in our fantasy team, God, help us to put those aside, to lean in, God, and that you would speak to every one of us, draw us deeper in love with you. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your presence with us now, Jesus, in your holy and precious name, amen. Just by way of a little bit of a, of a recap, if you remember a little bit, I gave you some background on, on the book of Nehemiah. This occurs around the, uh, 445 B.C. before Christ. This is in the Old Testament. You remember Israel, they were exiled. Uh, they were no longer faithful to God. And so God um, allowed uh, another nation to come in and take captive Israel. And they sent them out and scattered them across the land. The city of Jerusalem, which is where uh, God's presence was supposed to reside in the New Testament, it was in ruins. The temple was destroyed. The city was in complete ruins. And uh, we know that Ezra, uh, just before the book of Nehemiah, Ezra leads a group of people into the city. And they begin to rebuild the temple. And that's a celebration. Uh, But as they try to rebuild the walls, there's continued opposition. And so the walls of the city are torn down. The gates are no longer there. And so there's no protection for the city. This is uh, thinking about days long before us. Uh, your wall around a city was the protection. That's how you uh, could protect the city and, and ensure its safety. And so the, the, the city is in ruin. Uh, the city is in danger. And the people are discouraged. The people are in shame. Because here they are supposed to be the people of God. God has chosen people And they're in this horrible situation that really doesn't look good on God. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah is 800 miles away in the capital city of Persia. And he he asks his brother, his brother comes to town and he says, give me a report, tell me what's happening in Jerusalem. And his brother says, man, it's horrible. And the people are discouraged. They're in shame. They're embarrassed. The walls are torn down. There's no protection for the city. remember what happened, Nehemiah was broken. Nehemiah drops down to his knees and begins weeping to God. We said this is really unique because this shows something. Most of us, our human nature is to be highly uh, uh, selfish, where we become self-consumed, where we live our life as if life was all about me. And so when we go through our, our family, when we go through our work, when you go whatever it is, we want life to revolve around us. And so because of that, like, we, we focus right here. We don't really focus on what's happening around us. And here's Nehemiah in a great position. I mean, he's cut bare to the king. He's got influence. He's got wealth. And here he is. He hears about these people 800 miles away. People he's never met. And his heart breaks because these are the people of God. These are the people of God. This is a city of God. And he, he, and he drops down to his knees. And God gave him a vision at that point. God gave him a vision of, here's, this is what is happening right now. This is what it is. But Nehemiah, this is what it could be. This is what it should be. And God gave Nehemiah a vision. And so, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And as soon as Nehemiah heard these words, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And when we're looking at this idea of prayer in action, we're going to, Spend a little bit of time. What does it look like for us to be about prayer? And here, Nehemiah, he's broken over what's happening for the people of God. Is that what it looks like in our life? I'll be honest, like it's pretty easy for me to be consumed with just what's in front of me. It's pretty easy for me to say, well, here's my work, and here's my family, and here's my house, and I'm just going to be focused on me, 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 instead of being concerned about what's happening around me. Like, this should be a challenge to us. Like, do the people of God, does the glory of God become a concern in our heart? Or are we just happy focusing on my life with what's in front of me? Nehemiah hears the report about Jerusalem. And it says that he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is a concerted time, a prolonged time of fasting and prayer before God. This idea of, of weeping before God and fasting and praying because of the brokenness is really contrary to our modern Christianity. Like our modern Christianity has this emphasis for us as, of having joy and triumph in the Christian life, right? Like isn't that what God wants for us is to be joyful and have, have triumph and victory. I mean isn't this why we say the best life now? But see, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both of them emphasize this idea about prayer and fasting. Fasting is a refusal to be distracted from what you are requesting of God. It is not allowing anything to distract you from the the, the thing that God has put in front of you. It's an expression of wholehearted commitment to God for a specific purpose or a specific petition. In fact, you see, I said this, you see prayer and fasting all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 9, uh, Jesus sends the disciples out and says, I give you authority. And the disciples are there, and they're trying to, to cast a demon out of a man, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus comes and says, I got this. Cast a demon out. And the disciples are like, man, Jesus, like how come we couldn't do that? And Jesus' response was, this kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer and fasting idea about fasting. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus started his ministry with a prolonged time of prayer and fasting, of of humility before God, of God, I'm going to focus only on you. 40 days he went through that. See, when we are facing an impossible task, we have to recognize that we're powerless I mean, Nehemiah understood that. When God gave him the vision, Nehemiah, you're going to go to Jerusalem and lead the people to rebuild the walls. He recognized this is an impossible task. Like the walls, they've tried to be rebuilt before. In fact, the king, Artaxerxes, he stopped the rebuilding of the walls years before this. So Nehemiah recognized, man, this is an impossible situation. Like they've tried to do it, haven't been able to happen. There's all sorts of opposition. There's no way it's going to happen. And if, and if Nehemiah were to go to the king and ask permission, he's basically asking the, the king to go back on his word. I mean, the king has already said, this is my policy. We're not going to do this. And now he's saying, king, I want you to go back and change your word, which doesn't look good on the king. Additionally, man, the king is going to say, well, you're not dedicated to me. You're not loyal to me. You want to go back to this other city, to these other people. You're no longer, lo-. and guess what happens when you're not loyal to the king? It doesn't go well for you. But Nehemiah believed the impossible. God gave him the impossible. And he believed that that what Jesus iterated in Matthew chapter 19, that with God, all things are possible. And listen, as we are the people of God, this should be a challenge to us. To say, man, are we too self-consumed to notice what's happening around us? Are we too consumed with with, with our little life to, to be concerned about God's glory in the gospel that we would be weep when when the gospel was hindered? Makes me wonder, you know, why don't we pray like Nehemiah? Why don't we pray for big things like Nehemiah prayed for? Because I'll tell you what happens. We have too small of prayers. We think, oh, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna pray God, would you? Heal me of my, my, my cold. I've got a cold, God. Would you get rid of my cold? Or we pulling to Costco and say, God, would you give me a close parking spot? Please, God, give me a close parking spot. Do you recognize who you are actually praying to? This is God, the sovereign creator of all things. Listen, the size of your prayer shows you the size of your God. The things you pray for show what you believe God is able to do. And this is where, as a people of God, we've got to start praying these impossible prayers. Maybe, maybe not impossible. Maybe we believe that God can do all things. But we've got to start praying, God, would you do great things? Would you do great things right here at Restoration Church? Would you do great things in the city of Yakima? Would you do great things in my life, and my family, and around me, God? Would you do great things? I think the reason we don't pray like that is we don't really believe that God can do those things. This is why we've got to start praying bigger prayers. In fact, look at Nehemiah. Let's, let's make a commitment to, to fast and to pray. Like if we want to see God overthrow the works of Satan, if we want to see revival in our church, revival in our city, if we want to see God change the direction of a life, then it's going to require that we have a wholehearted commitment to God. A refusal to be distracted and an understanding that takes total reliance upon God. That's what it means when we pray and fast. We've got to start praying bigger. Nehemiah includes his prayer in chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy In sight of this man, Nehemiah understands, hey, the only way this is going to happen is if the king gives me permission. Because I'm kind of bound to the king. I'm kind of a servant of the king. I can't just quit one day and decide I no no longer want to do this. But I love what he prays because we have this tendency where we want to pray for miracles. We want to pray and say, God, God, I have this problem in my life. There's a problem in our city. There's a problem in our church. God, would you do this? And we pray for a miracle. And I absolutely believe that God does miracles. And I hope you believe that too. But I would say more often, we should be praying for an opportunity rather than a miracle. Because you see what Nehemiah prays for? He doesn't pray and say, God, go rebuild the walls. He says, God, give me success before the king. Grant me favor. Give me an opportunity. He's not praying for a miracle. He's praying for an opportunity. In fact, I heard this story about a man, and a man was, was, was in the city, and a, flood, a giant flood came. And the waters are coming, and he prays and says, God, God, would you save me? He waits on the front porch. Neighbor comes by in his canoe and says, hey, man, jump in, I'll take you to safety. And the guy's like, nope, I prayed to God to save me, and God's going to save me. The water keeps rising, goes into his living room. Please come in a motorboat. Hey, man, come on, we'll, we'll take you to safety. He's like, nope, God's going to save me. The waters keep rising. Now the guy's on his roof. He's on his roof. And, and, and in comes one of these rescue helicopters. And they drop down one of those really cool, uh, like, like, rope ladders. Wouldn't that be fun to, I've never, that'd be awesome, you know, what you see in the movies. Drops down this rope ladder and says, hey, man, jump on the rope, after, rope ladder and we'll take you to safety. He goes, no, man, I I trust in God to save me. Well, guess what happens? The guy drowns, goes to the gates of heaven. He's like, God, where were you? I prayed that you would save me. And God says, man, I sent you a canoe. I sent you a motorboat. I sent you a helicopter. What do you want? But isn't sometimes we pray like that? Instead of praying for an opportunity, we pray for a miracle. So when God puts the opportunity in front of our face, oh, no, I don't want to do that, God. And this is where we've got to understand the relationship between praying and doing. Think about your life and my life. Like, we've got a vision for our kids. We want to see our kids grow up and become men and women after God's own heart. We want our kids to, to, to be faithful to him instead of just praying that they would do that, why don't we pray for an opportunity to build character in the lives of our children? Why don't we pray for an opportunity to show them what it looks like to be committed to God? Understand that we have a role, we have a part in God accomplishing that prayer. I mean, think about this. We pray for our lost friends, don't we? What if, what if, In addition to praying for our lost friends, what if we prayed for an opportunity to share Christ with them? That we would have a conversation with them that would lead them to trust Christ as their Savior. I mean, this is where we pray and say, God, God, we're in a financial mess. God, would you get us out of this financial mess? Well, maybe instead of praying for a miracle that God would just let you win the lottery, why don't you pray for an opportunity to have a good job? To have a job that's going to pay you well and be consistent. And pray that you'd be able to work hard and sometimes hold your mouth so you don't lose that job. See, it's just a little bit of a change where instead of praying for a miracle, we pray, God, give me an opportunity. The Nehemiah has been praying. And if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, it starts out and says, In the month of Nisan Centura, in the twentieth year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in this presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? What's interesting is, chapter 2 says, In the month of Nisan, centra, I included the centra, it's a joke. I'm funny. I get it. Nisan is, is March or April. If you remember chapter one, chapter one occurred in, would have been around November. So Nehemiah has been praying this prayer for how long? Like four or five months. Four or five months. He's praying and praying and praying. God, would you do this? God, would you give me an opportunity? And no answer. Now, most of us, like when we pray, our time and expectation is, God, you're going to do it right now. Like, God, I prayed, to so open the door now. And God's timing is just a little different than ours. We lose sight of, of the fact that in an instant, God can transform a situation that we thought was impossible. Because our timing and God's timing isn't always the same. And so oftentimes, God gives us that vision, God gives us that burden, God, God puts that in our, in our mind and in our heart. And we start praying for it, but then when God doesn't answer immediately, what do we do? We quit praying. We quit dreaming. We quit hoping. And oftentimes that vision dies because we stop praying to God. Or what happens is we have that burden, we have that that vision, we have that, that, that thing that God puts in front of us. And then life continues. And life gets in the way. And we lose sight of that thing that we're longing for, that we're praying for. In fact, I, some of you know the story. When I was at Madison House, uh, we worked there for seven and a half years. And one of the things when we worked there is we had to bring a lot of change. The, the ministry was, was, was closed before we came in, and it had some, some issues with it. So had the opportunity to come and bring some leadership, and it was great. God blessed it. We saw uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids come to know Christ as their Savior. Sometimes, though, if any of you have been in leadership and you know, uh, when you come in to bring change to an organization, sometimes you have to burn some bridges. And sometimes you realize, man, I've done about as much change uh, and used as much influence as I have. So my wife and I understood, hey, you know what? Our time's going to be coming to an end. It's going to be time for us to, to look for something else. And so we started praying God, would you open a door? God, would you, would you lead us and guide us? And, and my buddy, uh, my buddy was a pastor, and he said, hey, Hey, what about you coming to work for me? Now, I love this guy. I looked up to this guy. This guy, man, if I could be him when I grew up, I'd be happy. So we started praying and praying and praying. And man, I was frustrated because it just didn't happen. Money wasn't there. The timing wasn't there. Ended up bringing in another guy. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? But then I think about this, though. On Thursday, we had the opportunity. Some of us came and watched Gary Pippets graduate from the New Life program. This man is a man who, if you've heard his story, man, God's done some tremendous things to bring him to a season of of, of recovery, of sobriety, of victory in his life. I think about God's answer to that prayer. think about a year. When God said, hey, maybe instead of doing that, God, Kevin, what if you planted a church in downtown Yakima? I think about the joy of watching Gary graduate this past week and him saying, man, I can't tell you how much the church means to me and how much the church helped me accomplish this, of, of how God used the church to help me be sober. Man, if, if, if God would have, if I would have given up and stopped praying, Restoration Church doesn't exist. I'm not sure what Gary, Gary would be right now. In fact, when I look at our church, I and mean, there's like 16, 18 of us that are here when we started. And this is what God has done. God has brought us together, God has brought people in. And we've seen life change after life change because of this church. Man, I'm glad I didn't stop and, and quit when God didn't answer my first prayer. And this is where when God doesn't answer our prayer after a day, after a week, after a month, listen, we can't stop praying. Nehemiah, took him four months. And if for you, it might be four months, it might be four years, it might be four decades. But in an instant, God can transform any situation that we thought was impossible. And that's what he does. It's not in our timing, it's in his. So he gets this opportunity, verse 4 says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? For I prayed to the God of heaven. King says, what do you want? And he offers this kind of shotgun-type prayer, this quick little prayer. Okay, God, I've prayed for an opportunity. God, here it is. I need you now. Yeah, oftentimes we forget this idea that, that oftentimes we are the means that God uses to answer our own prayers. Do you understand that? Like, oftentimes we're praying, we're, and we're seeing something happen. We're praying for somebody. We're praying, man, this guy... Man, they're, in, they're, they're, they're struggling financially. God, would you, would you take care of this person? You understand that oftentimes we are the means that God uses to answer our own prayers. And this is where there comes this tension between us praying and us acting. Uh, of deciding, hey, when do we jump in and when do we do this? How do we, how do we accomplish this? How do we know when, when God is leading us to act? When God is actually calling us to answer our own prayer? Because honestly, there's times when, when, when God gives me that vision and I can, I can pray and I can psych myself up. All right, God, this is what you want. Okay, God, uh, oh, I'm ready for it now. God, I've, I've got the courage. I'm going to go and, and, and do this. And most of the time, that becomes me going out before God. Because it's not a matter of me psyching myself up until I'm ready to do it. So how do we know when God opens the door for us and when we're supposed to start acting? Two things I think is very unique. And if you look at the way that Nehemiah responded, verse 2 says Nehemiah was was very much afraid. Verse 4 says, so I prayed. He was afraid. I don't know if he felt like he had the courage, if he was ready for it. He said he had to pray. He understood the only way this is accomplished is if God does something here. And this is what we need to understand is that when when God opens the door for us, and we need, how do we know when God opens the door? Number one, it's not all about us. It's not about us having all the courage and all the the strength. It's about us recognizing we are dependent upon God. And, And when that door opens, it's not because of me. It's because, I mean, look at Nehemiah. He says, I'm afraid. Well, no, you've been praying about this for four months. You shouldn't be afraid. No, absolutely When we understand, when we're praying for big things, it shouldn't be, I'm ready for this now, God. I'm I'm ready to open the door. Now, when God opens the door, there's still this dependence on him. About, God, I need you. God, I need you. Like, I need you to do this. I understand the door's open, and I'm going to walk through it. But, God, I'm still dependent on you, not dependent on my courage and my strength and my whatever it happens to be. And that's the time when it's time for us to act. When God opens the door, we can recognize it's still dependent on God. And that's the time that God uses us to begin to answer those prayers. It says in verse 5, it says, So I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for that house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Tenemiah we saw him praying for four months, praying, 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 fasting. God, 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 give me an opportunity. Open a door, God. And when the door opens you see Nehemiah, see how prepared he is. See how he's planned ahead. He's got, he's got a plan. He's got some wisdom towards him. The king says, okay, what do you need? And he's like, here's what I need. Boom, 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 boom. See, in that time of waiting, waiting time is not wasted time you understand that? Like in that time where we're waiting for God to answer the prayer, it's not just time for us to sit back idly. There's still a component where we have to uh, uh, plan and we have to have wise strategy. Because praying and trusting God doesn't negate having wisdom and having a plan. Sometimes we, we have this tendency to over-spiritualize the work of God. Where we just say, Man, I've, I've prayed, but that's all I'm going to do. I mean, imagine this. I, I had a crazy week this week. We're building a house, and we've got all these deadlines we're trying to meet. And so uh, it was one of these things where I just had a lot going on my plate this week. And I got to the end of the week, and I'm like, man, I still got a bunch of sermon I've got to do some prep work on. There's you know, the tendency to say, man, I should just pray and just trust that God will give me words to say. I don't have to, I don't have to prep. I don't have to study it. <laughs> but I understand that for God to use that, there is some planning that has to happen. There's some preparation that goes into it. And do you understand that about the things that that you're praying about? You want God to do these things. Are you preparing for that? You want God to give you a spouse. Are you preparing to be a good spouse? Are you preparing your life to where you could take care of a spouse? You want God to, to enlarge your influence. Are you preparing yourself with character? Integrity. See, there's this idea, we've got to understand that waiting time is not wasted time. Because for God to accomplish the things, it requires preparation. requires planning. It requires us to, to seek wisdom. There's a principle that Andy Stanley talks about, and I think Nehemiah understood this. The opportunity, apart from preparation, equals a missed opportunity. God gave him an opportunity. And Nehemiah he was prepared. He had a plan. Step one was to convince the king, hey, let me go. Step two, convince the king, hey, I need some financial support. I need some money to go and rebuild these walls. Step three was, uh, hey, king, I need, I need letters to give me safe passage so that way nobody stops me along the way between 800 miles. Step four, hey, king, I, I, I need to get a deal worked out with Asaph so I have lumber to rebuild the, the walls and to rebuild the gates and to build my house. Step four, I need to go to Jerusalem. I need to inspect the walls and see how much damage and see what it really looks like. And figure out what needs to be done. Step, step, what step are we on? Step six, I need to get people on board to, to begin to rebuild the walls. Step seven, got to get started. See, Nehemiah, during this time of waiting, he's put a plan together. he sought wisdom. He's got all these steps in place. And you see that as the king says, what is it you need? He says, boom, 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 I'm ready. I've got an answer. I've got a plan. Verse 9 and 10 says that he 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 jets off to Jerusalem with the letters. Verse 10, we're introduced to the key antagonists throughout the book, Sambalad and Tobiah. He said, what are you doing? Continues on. Verse verse 11 says, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, me and a few men with me, and I told nobody what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's a little bit of secrecy in what he's doing. He comes to Jerusalem. He's going to go to step six, step five, inspect the wall, step five. He's going to step five, inspect the wall, see how much damage is done, what needs to happen. And he doesn't blast. He understands there's people there that will op- op- oppose him. So he doesn't blast everybody. and he say, hey, look, I've, I'm your Savior. I'm coming to fix everything. He takes some time. He wants to go investigate. He wants to accomplish his plan. Verse 13, so I went out by night to the valley gate at the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. That's exactly what it sounds like. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. But I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, where there was no room for the animal that was underneath uh, under, under me to pass. But I went up uh, by night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and I so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, as I had not yet told the Jews and the priests, on the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. See, I love this picture, because here's Nehemiah coming, and he's honestly inspecting the walls. He's honest about what he sees. Man, this stuff is in ruins. This is in shambles. This looks like trash. Listen, this kind of honesty of being able to, to assess where we are, isn't that necessary in the church? Isn't that necessary in our lives? Like, we are never going to become stronger. You are never going to become a better person unless you recognize the areas that you are weak. You understand how that works? And we can't be honest with where we are, then we can't become better in the future. And I get it. We have this tendency uh, always to assume the best about ourselves. Where we want to think the, in the most positive, positive terms about ourselves. Where, I'm not really that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person, Really? I mean, I can't compare myself to somebody else like, like Jacob He. Like, oh man, uh, compare myself to him. Woo-wee! The moment that we become more concerned about preserving our reputation, about preserving other people's opinion about us, preserving our legacy, man, that's when we've made it about us and no longer about the glory of Jesus. Nehemiah had understood, I can't rebuild these walls unless I'm honest with what I'm working with. Takes an honest view. And then he goes to the people in verse 17. And then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah goes to the people and says, here's the problem. Walls are torn down. And I notice, I don't know if you notice this, but verse 17, I want you to see this. Notice what he says. He says, the trouble that we are in. Not the trouble that you are in. He says, this is the trouble that we are in. He He is identifying himself with them. Now, you've got to understand, these are people, and they're discouraged. These are people that have lived in shame, have lived with broken walls, have lived this this life where people are, are constantly mocking them and belittling them. And it seems like these people have accepted it. You've been there. You get to the point where you're in a rut and you're just like, this is the way it is. This is where these people are. They're discouraged. They don't have hope. They're not dreaming about a better life. And here comes Nehemiah. He comes in. And, and, and he identifies with them says, listen, this is the trouble that we are in. He jolts, them, uh, he jolts their faith and, and points them to a God who can do all things. A God where all things are possible. He imparts faith on them. He gives them a vision of a better future. And the response from the people is they're encouraging. They say, man, let us rebuild. See, one of the things I think when you look at characters in the Bible, especially Nehemiah, we can look at Nehemiah and think, man, he's like Michael Jordan. You know, he's just like this, this otherworldly figure. You know, he's like one of those great quarterbacks um, like, like um, you know Peyton Manning, like, like Russell Wilson, uh, you know, like one of these great guys, not like a Packers quarterback, but like a really good quarterback, you know. And we think, well, that, well, 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 his life is so much different than mine because, his, you know, he might be a Russell Wilson, but I'm like a Josh McCown. Like, I'm just down here floundering and I, you know. But I want you to understand, Nehemiah isn't this otherworldly character. He's not this great person. Nehemiah was an everyday, regular Josh McCown just like you and I. In fact, he was a servant to the king. He was a slave to the king. And so it's easy for us to look at these stories and say, well, that's Nehemiah, and I'm not like Nehemiah. No, we are like Nehemiah. Nehemiah was like one of us. And he used his, his influence to encourage the people around him, to breathe life into those who needed it most. Then what about us? Like, isn't that the type of person we are to be? That we look around at the people around us the people that are discouraged, the people that are struggling. Shouldn't we be like Nehemiah and just breathe life and faith and encouragement to those people around us who are struggling? That Nehemiah is going to lead these people to something beautiful. And listen, it's not because he's greater than you or I. It's because he was willing to care. Imagine what God could do in your life if we just... In our life, if we were just willing to care. Last thing. Verse 19. It says, But when Sanballat, the Holonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. These are the antagonists. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is the thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Do you have the king's permission to be here? Now, what's the easiest thing for Nehemiah to respond with? Say, hey, I got the letter from the king right here that says I'm allowed to be here. I've got the letter that gives us permission. But that's not what Nehemiah does. Verse 20 says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no right or claim in Jerusalem. See, this is what happens when, when, when we have prayer. And action. That when we understand that God is the one that opens the doors. And that we're stepping in and following God. That our confidence doesn't come from a king. Our confidence doesn't come from our circumstances. Our confidence comes from God himself. That we trust him. Hey, God is the one who's led me here. God is the one who's opening doors. God is the one who is moving. And that's where peace comes from. In the midst of difficulty. That's where confidence comes from, in an impossible situation. Not because of the king, but from God himself. In terms of this thing, this question we're wrestling with today, what is the relationship between prayer and action? Nehemiah teaches us a very simple principle. That if we are going to accomplish great things, that we need to be like Nehemiah. We must be a people who pray and act in that order. You understand how that works? We pray and we act, but it's got to be in that order. It's got to be seeking God's face first. It's got to be God giving us an opportunity. When the door opens, we've got to be ready and prepared for God to use us.